I don't want to knock over this rocket. That wouldn't be a blast for any of us. Huh? Thank you, thank you. Ah, that's free with the sermon. How do you like that rocket, by the way? Gee, I wonder who made that rocket. Huh. Hmm. It was me, in case you're wondering. <laughs> that thing is so precarious, I'm afraid that if I get really passionate, which might happen, um, I might knock the whole thing over. So I got to come down here. Can everybody see me? I mean, not that that matters, but can you hear me? Good, okay. Give it up for all of our workers on this VBS set. You don't know just how much we sacrificed this past week. Forget the time, okay? We sacrificed millions of brain cells as we smelt all of the melting styrofoam that we cut the paint jars and paint fumes that were open and, and everywhere in that gym. Maybe that was why we had so many people there. Um, but we worked hard this week, hard this week, and this was a lot of fun. David and Kathleen had a vision several years ago to restart our VBS program, and this is what you get when David and Kathleen get behind something. So give it up for them. If you have a child or you, you know someone who has children, please register them this week and send them out here. We'll have uh, probably 70 to 100 kids, just depending on uh, who, how many sign up. That's usually what we average, and they'll be in this church, and we will be glorifying God with our children, training our children to love Jesus and His church. That's our goal here. To love Jesus, to train our children to love Jesus and His church. There's a, a very, very scary statistic of young people who recant of the faith between the ages of 17 to 22. Let that be a warning to anyone who is 17 to 22. The, the statistic is that you leave the faith. And the reason that, that scholars are speculating that young people are leaving the faith is because they don't believe that the church is essential to their lives. Certainly, the God of the Bible does not fit the narrative of, of what the world has to say about our lives. It's all about us from the narrative of the world. But before I begin, let me also say thank you to the ladies who put on a wonderful Father's Day breakfast this morning. Give it up for our ladies. It was delicious. The food was great. And all the ladies were, were serving the men, and it was, it was really, really cool. They, they did a raffle, and, and all the gifts that they were giving out, I, I noticed a theme from the gifts. Um, the first gift in the raffle was a full, portable travel grooming kit for men. The, the second gift that I opened up, or that I saw opened up, was a vacuum cleaner. That's, that's not a joke. And I'm noticing a theme here, ladies. A passive-aggressive theme here. So apparently, I think one of the guys got an automatic toilet seat putter-downer. <laughs> I'm going to steal that one. That should be in every one of our marital vows. And I vow to, is it put it down or up? I don't remember which one it is. Ask my wife. She, she knows. I don't remember which one it is. Well, I'm beginning a new series this week, and we're starting our, our first sermon in this series, and the, the title of this series is, This is the End. It is not a sermon series on the book of Revelation. It is a sermon series on the goal of our church. What is the end or the goal of what we are doing here as a church. Before we begin, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord God, it is important, it is essential that we seek to glorify you, God. 
Many of us can be honest this morning and say that our lives don't reflect your glory. I think all of us, no one here would say we reflect your glory perfectly, that's for sure. But Lord, do we even desire to grow more and more and glorify you more and more in what we do? Lord, that's a desire that only your Holy Spirit can give to us. No one in here would say that salvation was on their accord. No one in here would be so negligent or so blasphemous to assume that we contributed anything to our salvation. It was you, Lord, and if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here today. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be in your very house praising your name. You, you gave us the family that gave us the word. You gave us the, the heart that's, that called out on Jesus' name for salvation. Your word tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord but by your spirit. And so the very, the very words, Jesus is Lord, when they come from our mouth are from your spirit. And so we thank you for this, Lord God. But Lord, we know we are so far away from glorifying you in our lives. And so, Lord, I ask and pray that every individual person in here today would take seriously the task of this church, which is to cultivate a greater love for God. Lord, your word tells us that if we delight in you, you will give us the desires of our heart. And you promise that you'll give us the desires of our heart. And even in the act of delighting in you, we are getting the ultimate desire of our heart, you. Lord, don't let things be our desire, our delight. A career. Don't let our careers be our desire and our delight. Don't let our children or our spouses be our desire and our delight. Don't. Let anything but you, God, be our desire and our delight. Lord God, your word commands us to desire and delight in you. Lord, help us to do that this morning and in this church so long as we are here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the end. Is a sermon series designed to answer this question. What is our specific purpose as a church? Another way to ask that question is, why do, why do we, Northwest Baptist Church, exist? The goal, or the end, as I'm calling it in the series, the end, in other words, of this sermon series is to challenge every one of us to live to a higher purpose and to inspire us and challenge us to live for God and for neighbor. My hope for every individual person at Northwest Baptist Church is to begin a wonderful journey away from the self and towards God and others. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Philippians 2 really quickly. Philippians 2. Look at these verses. I'm going to read them rather rapidly. We're going to get to verses 5 where Paul is going to speak about the glory of Christ's work. But I want you to see the motivation for the glory of Christ's work. So, so when Paul begins to talk about the goodness and the glory of what God does, I want you to see what the catalyst is for that. Okay, so look at the first couple of verses. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Paul's writing this from prison. He says if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. In other words, if, if you too have the Holy Spirit living in you, any affection and sympathy, if you love me, if you love God... Complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he wants a church to have one mind. And how does he get everybody with individual minds and individual goals and individual life journeys to have one mind? How does he get that? He says, have one mind. That's our goal. How do we do that? 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, so we we absolutely have a right and a responsibility with the God-given gifts and abilities that he has given to us to maintain our lives as best as we can so that we're not a burden on the church, so we are to care for our own needs, yes, but, yes, but, as Paul says here, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind in you, Paul says. Many of us, all of us, have our individual minds. And we're doing what we want to do with our life. But Paul says, I want you to have one mind, church. I want you to have one mind. A mind away from yourself and towards others. Have this one mind, and, and how do we have that one mind? He says, I want you to have all together the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Listen to the mind of Christ. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to. In other words, he emptied himself by taking the form of servant. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he leaves his throne in heaven to come and to be in the sin-filled, sick and dying world of human beings. God endured the suffering we all endure by simply being born as human beings in a world of death and decay. Of course, Jesus was without sin. We are born under the curse of sin, but Jesus subjected himself to being human. It means that Jesus got stomach aches like you get stomach aches. It means that Jesus got colds like you got colds, and that Jesus was sad when loved ones die, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. It means he suffered like you did. That God, who left a place of no suffering and of ultimate glory, would come to earth and suffer. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was not not just a, a death, it was a shameful death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our mission at this church is to be like Christ by beginning the same journey Christ began by moving away from ourselves and towards God and for others. That's our mission. And you can begin that today. You can begin that this very moment. The goal of our church is not what God can do for humans, but what humans can do for God. The end here, the goal here, is not health, wealth, success, and prosperity. Some of our greatest servants of the Lord have gone home to be with Him. He does not promise us everlasting physical life on this side of death. And so away with this notion that some preachers would have you believe that if you just have more faith, you never get sick and die. Jesus was 33 when he was crucified as a criminal. You tell me that Jesus didn't have faith? No, please, I'm begging you, get rid of this false doctrine. And you say, I don't really believe that, but it's so subtle how it creeps up in our lives because the first time something goes bad, we immediately start to think, well, what did I do to deserve this? Nothing. You actually deserve death right now. It's by God's grace that that heart beats one more bump, bump every time. 
The end of our church is loving God and neighbor more and more each day. More and more because we haven't reached perfection in this life. The end then is God. The end then is others. This is the end, to cultivate a greater love for God and for neighbor more and more each day. That's our purpose as a church. This morning I want to talk about cultivating first a greater love for God. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Here's the story. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, Pharisees and Sadducees were, were rivals. They were not friends. They were both Jewish groups. One group was more zealous for the law, but their own interpretation and tradition of the law of God, that is the Pharisees, than the Sadducees who were a lot more postmodern. They were a lot more secular. They denied that there was any resurrection of, of the body, and they, they really were more opportunistic in their, in their approach to life. And so they would, they would have no problem giving up their religious views in order to be one with the Roman government. So they were, they were very secular. If the, if the world changed, they'd quickly get over with the world, and they never found themselves at odds with the world. That was the Sadducees. So it says, when they heard, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So they're thinking, okay, you silenced our rivals, but what about us? Hmm. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This guy is asking a question. This happens all the time. People ask the wrong question. Here, they're asking the wrong question to the wrong person. What is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he responds to them using a phrase that every Orthodox Jew said, and the Pharisees would have said it every morning, called the Shema. And the first part of that is, You will love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6. We're to teach that to our kids. We're to do it as we come and as we go, as we wake up, as we go to sleep. We are to remind ourselves that God is the ultimate person of our lives. He is, he is one. He is the object of our faith and of our religion. And Jesus says the greatest commandment is this. And he adds to that to love God not only with your mind but with your soul and actually also with your mind as well. So love him with your heart, love him with your soul, love him with your mind. In other words, don't just love God by obeying commands. You are to desire Him with every part of your being. This is the great and first commandment, He says. You know, you may have expected Him to say something like, don't murder or don't, or, or, or don't put other gods before God. Jesus says, no, the greatest commandment is to love God with this all-consuming love. And really, everyone who was hearing this would have said, that sounds impossible. I don't have the hardware to love God with all of my being. I'm going to need some help from that. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. You see, if you love God, you don't put other gods before him. You don't worship graven images or take his name in vain or forget that one day out of the week, one, just one, just one day, you get six. And the God who gave you the six asked for you to have one day to do what? To just enjoy and delight in Him. Just one day. See, if you love God, you, this isn't going to be a problem. And if you love others, you're going to honor your mother and father. If you love others, you're not going to murder them. You're not going to commit adultery. 
with them. You're not going to steal their possessions. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to covet what they have. Because you love others the way that God loves others. You want to see what's best for them. You want to see them loving God too. And Jesus says, listen, this is the whole law. I don't need to get into a debate about which one is more important. He's a murderer, and, and murder's a lot worse than lying, in, at least in our minds. And Jesus says, you know what? It doesn't matter, because even if you break the law at the least of one of these, you've broken the whole thing. But, but, but I command you to love God. Second one is love God or love neighbor. But how do we love God? And he tells us in the passage that we're to love God three ways. And, and there are several variations amongst the synoptics. One adds strength to it. But the, but the overall, our overarching teaching of the synoptic gospels, and the overarching teaching that Jesus is driving at here is that we are to love God with our full being so that there's not a single place in our life where God doesn't have ownership. Not a single place. Physical, that's God's. Mental, that's God's. What I desire in life, that's God's. This is a love for a person and not for rules. And the lawyer, like so many people who are wrongheaded in their thinking, think that one can be godly and can be the type of person that God wants simply by keeping rules. But Jesus says, no, it's not by keeping rules. I command love for God. You know, the first thing you find out about a false religion based on rules is that people don't love God when he's this rule God, this God who's nitpicking every little thing. Oh, not supposed to wear pants to church, ladies. Oh, you're not supposed to have tattoos, ladies. Oh, you're not supposed to eat or drink, ladies and men. Men, you're not supposed to... Like God is a principle or something. Like he's up there just like looking down and every time we do something wrong, he's just there to, nope, that's not the rule. No, he says, listen, if you love me, you're going to desire me. You won't even have to worry about the rules. You don't even have to worry about the rules because you got me. You're going to want me. You're going to desire me. And you're not going to get into these silly debates. You're going to love me. I'm going to be your portion. Not rules. Our first goal as a church is therefore to cultivate a greater love for God. This morning, I want us to see what loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind really looks like in life. The first point I want to make off of this passage is this. Loving God with all our heart means desiring Him above all else. Loving God with our, all of our heart means that we desire God. Think about that word, desire. Listen to the language of God in the Old Testament when you read through the prophets. And his relationship with Israel, he is a jealous God. In fact, in the second commandment, when he says, don't make any graven images, he says, I will visit the iniquity on that, that, the one who does the third, fourth generation, but to those who do, thousands, for I am a jealous God. Jealous. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to speak with him. When you're mad at him, you tell him. When you've done wrong, you confess it. He wants you to brag about him the way you brag about the dolphins. Ain't much bragging. I saw this person yesterday, this family, they drive in this, this dolphin's car, and it's got dolphin stuff all over it. And when they get out, they had all this dolphin stuff on. And I just thought, I, I, know, I know what your life goal is. Many of us, we don't know anything. Do, do people see that our life goal and our desire is God? At Billy Graham, we know he desired God because he spent his whole life preaching. What about the rest of us? Hmm? Is it only Billy who gets to desire God? What about us? The heart is the main organ 
of psychological, physical, spiritual life. It's the place in man at which God bears witness to himself, says the Theological Dictionary of New Testament. One definition said, the heart is the center and source of the whole inner life with its thinking, its feeling, its volition, its emotion. And the driving word here is the word emotion, the feeling. It's the thing that gets us excited and gets us up every morning. In the heart dwell our feelings and our emotions, our desires and our passions. It is the seed of our understanding, the source and thought and reflection upon God. The heart is the seat of our will and the source of our resolves. The Westminster Catechism, question number one, you've heard this asked many times. It says this, what is the chief end of man? It uses the word end, just like I'm using it, to mean goal. What is the purpose? What is the goal? And it says, what is the chief goal of man? And the answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Another way of asking that question is simply this, what is the meaning of life? We see people talk about this and they want to know, what, what, what are we here for? Like, what, like, what's going on? All of a sudden, there is this spectacular carbon-based creation that has thoughts and emotions and a will. And, and, it, and it, ha- it loves others and it, it can create beautiful things like VBS sets. And, and it loves spouses and friends and it's very complex. Well, what, what the heck is it here for? You think God just made me look this good for no reason? He made me for you, Steph. Where are you, baby? You're not even in here. There you go. This is all for you. I think that's contradictory to the point I'm trying to make here. The point is, what are we here for? To get college degrees and to get more money and to have bigger houses and faster cars? Some of us, that's what we think we're here for. God says, no, that's not why you're here. Today's churches are writing a new catechism of orthodoxy centered around man rather than on God. How would the average person today answer the Westminster's question, what is the meaning of life or what is the end of man? How would even the average pastor answer this question today? For now, we can only speculate based upon what we see, but I would speculate that some answers would be something like the chief end of man is to find meaning and relevance for his life. You hear that? Or or that the chief end of man is to have health, wealth, and prosperity. And that the chief end of man is to learn to love himself. Or that the chief end of man is to accept all people as God's children. Or that the chief end of man is to find what works for you and embrace whatever truth makes you happy. Or or that the chief end of man is to make a difference and help others. All of those sound very, very good. The Dalai Lama, one of the, the head spiritualists of our world says that the true meaning of life is this. We are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90 or 100 years at the very most. And during that period, we trust or we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. And I am so afraid that the average pastor in the average church, if he began his sermon with that very quote, he would get a resounding amen from people. And the problem with it is, it's false teaching. You're not the end. You are here not for yourself because yourself is going to fail you. You already know you've already experienced failure in your life. You know that if the best that this life has to offer is the crumminess you've done with your life, you know that this is not the end. I hope there's more to this life than me. Oh gosh, I fail and have failed just like you. I hope that the end is not our political leaders. They fail us hour by hour. 
I hope it's not our college professors or our bank account, which can be here today and gone tomorrow. I hope there's something more than that. We're not here to contribute to other people's happiness. The true goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're not visitors on this planet like the Dalai Lama says. The Bible says that we're the chief stewards and the crowning glory of God's original creation. That we are the pinnacle act of God's creation, not by virtue of our own humanness, but by virtue of the dignity that has been ascribed to us by being the only creatures made in the image of God. You know that not even angels are made in the image of God? At least scripture says nothing about it. Human beings are made after God's image. We're not all here for 90 and 100 years. We ought never to say tomorrow and today we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead, we ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. For we are but a mist that appears for a little time, says James. And then we vanish. All such boasting about long life is evil. The Lama says 90 to 100 years. He says, James says, that's evil. You don't know that you won't die this next moment. He says, whoever boasts in the future sins. We're not here to contribute to other people's happiness, but rather to go and to make more disciples who desire God. And that of every nation. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded. We are to confront the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, making known the sinfulness of men and the evil of their hearts, not look after their happiness. We are to tell every living creature the bad news so that they can understand and receive the good news. And the bad news is you're not okay. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you need a Savior. We are not to make people happy. We are to give them God and teach them about God and let their happiness be in God. What is more, the definition that the Lama has given us of the meaning of life assumes that men are even capable of doing something good without God. True good is not for us to say. We are not sovereign over what is and what isn't good. We call good only what is good, and what is good is good only as it is grounded in God Himself. If therefore a person is not found in God, he cannot perform true good. He may deceive himself by calling his actions quote-unquote good, and he may even be deceived by the world into thinking that obedience to the system of the world is good, but God defines good, not us. Today, the world says what is good is being tolerant. You see what happens when Christians don't go with the party line of the world, they're hated. They're called homophobe. They're called, they're called xenophobe. They're called hateful. They're called all these sorts of things. None of it true. All fear-mongering. But simply because we said that what they're saying is good doesn't correspond with what God said is good. Tolerance today is the chief virtue. And it used to mean to put up with someone or something whom or with which we do not ourselves agree. That's what tolerance used to mean. But today, tolerance has become synonymous with acceptance. That if you're really tolerant, you'd never say that what a person does is evil or wicked. Don't don't you see Satan's hand in that puppet? Don't you see his hand in that puppet? Never say that anybody is bad. 
I mean, don't you see how contradictory it is to be secular and to say that everything is good and to even embrace and say that you cannot, you cannot say that there are certain world of life views that say everything is evil that doesn't conform with that world of life view, even to the point of if you don't conform with our world of life view, we will put your neck to the sword, that they have to embrace that. That's how contradictory their way of thinking is in their worldview of tolerance. If we want to be friends, though, with God, we must affirm what he affirms. For Scripture tells us that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Who do you want to be your friend? God affirms that no man is good, not even one. How, therefore, can any of us be good to anyone when we are radically depraved and wholly incapable of producing any good works? There is a way that we can do good. And that's the good news I want to give to you. You can do good to others if God's Spirit lives in you. The Scriptures prophesied of a time where God would pour out His Spirit into His people and they would not need the law of God on tablets because it would be now written on their heart. You want to be good? You have to have the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can do no good. But if we're going to make God our God, we have to put to death our idols. We have to make a crucial move of destroying the idols in our lives if we're going to desire God. And I don't want you to think of idols as merely carved images, though they're not less than that. Tim Keller defines idolatry as counterfeit gods. What is an idol, he says? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. These are counterfeit gods. And counterfeit gods are anything so central, central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You see these men who, when they lose all their money, what they do? They go into their office and they sit back in their desk and they drink a whiskey and they pull a gun out of their drawer and they blow their brains out because their God has died. And I would submit to you that if our God died, life wouldn't be worth living. The question is, who's your God? Is your God a God that will fail you? Or is your God an eternal God? The everlasting God. The God whose radiance and glory will never fade away, but that gives light to all darkness, who wipes away every tear forever. Is that your God? That God never dies. And that's why God knows you can't love things. Because things will always disappoint. What is so wrong with the Dalai Lama's answer to the question of the meaning of life? It's not that the content is necessarily bad to hear. It's just that it's wrong because it's made something other than God ultimate. God is ultimate. The first step we take as a church to loving God more and more is making Him our chief desire. Number two, loving God means devoting our entire lives to Him. The word soul here means the seat of life. It is the source of breath and blood and a person's total nature. Soul there means your life. From the womb to the tomb, where are you going? What are you giving your life to? To him or to thing? The soul is connected to our physical life. It is also the focus of our whole being, our body and our spirit. When we're devoted to someone or something, our lives are completely sold out to it. 
We talk about someone who's devoted to us. That means they're sold out to us. We eat, we sleep, we think what we are devoted to. Everywhere we go, everything that we do, everything that we want in life is wrapped up in our pursuit of the person or the thing that we're devoted to. We just want it. We're devoted to it. We're going to give every moment of our life to it or to him. The greatest commandment is to make God the chief person of our devotion. In the Levitical law, a thing that was devoted to God was to be exclusively used for him and not for mere human enterprise. To devote one's entire life to the Lord means that we are giving back to God what already belongs to Him, namely our entire lives. Listen to what Scripture says to us about giving of our entire lives. And some of us might feel very uncomfortable with this idea, but I ask you, Christian, is there any other way of life that New Testament Scripture gives to you other than that you sell out and give everything back to the one who gave everything for you? If you see a different scripture, let me know. Let me read some to you and you tell me whether or not we are to give our entire lives. Romans 6, 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves, that's members of the body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to even more lawlessness, they were, they were loving themselves more and more. That was their end. He says, but now Christians present your members as slaves, that is, servants, to the righteousness leading to sanctification. I don't know about you, but slaves don't devote themselves to anybody but to their masters. Scripture tells us we are slaves to righteousness. You you, you don't get an option here of being free. You're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And you're going to have a master. Either it's going to be the wickedness of yourself or it's going to be the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all that those who might no longer, or those who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Peter 4, 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Is this point being made clearly? I've got other verses. Christian. And and, and I know you feel challenged by this because I do. I feel challenged by this. But just because it's challenging doesn't mean we don't strive. And that's why our mission as a church is to do this more and more. You bring in your brokenness, I bring in my brokenness, and together we're going to try and repair this thing together more and more, and we don't become complacent with the rotten stinkingness of the slave of the old life of the flesh. But we want to seek to be slaves to the righteousness of God. Do you know that your life is not your own? If you are a Christian, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And so whether you live, says Paul, Romans 14, 7 and 8, whether you live, you live to the Lord. Whether you die, you die to the Lord. Christian, the good news is God owns you. What better master to have than the God of all compassion who did not withhold, he he did not hold back his own son, but gave his own son for you. What a master to love. So not only do we desire God, but we devote our lives to God because our lives belong to him. Finally, loving God means disciplining our minds. The mind here refers to the faculty of thinking and comprehending and reasoning, understanding. It is the intelligence. It is the mind. 
It is thought reflection about God. The mind represents what fills our thoughts. So many of us think about everything except God. Because I don't want to hear about theology. That's a big word. I mean, you guys can give me the statistical data on LeBron James in the playoffs. And let me ask you to tell me a little bit about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, oh, I have faith. I don't need to talk about that. You know, that's a reality in the American church. We're anti-intellectual. So that our kids, when they leave, they've been doing trust falls in youth group their whole life. We were watching, uh, we're Steph, we were watching America's Funniest Home Videos last night, and they were doing this youth trust fall, and the youth pastor fell back, and he flipped over the trust fall and smashed his face on the concrete. And I thought, how stupid. Because your kids are going to walk right into a college classroom full of intellectuals and they're going to challenge their mind for the first time and they're going to say, this God that I believed in is bogus. You say, they don't do that. 70% of them do. We have to engage the mind. We need the older generation to be mentors to the younger generation and to talk big about God. He needs to be big. My dad talked so big about God in our house. It was a big deal. When we would sit down at the dinner table, he used to say, son, I don't want to hear any potty humor at the dinner table. We couldn't talk about potty humor. You know what potty humor is. What goes into the potty? Son, tell me about your day, he would ask. I spent night after night on the front porch with my father and my mother, and we talked big about God. Big! We'd ask questions like, you know, son, he would say, well, what do you think? What do you think's going on out there in the universe? And I began to look up away from myself, and I'd look at the universe, and I'd say, what is that? Where is that going? How did this get here? The heavens declare the glory of God. We talk big about God. Our thought life was devoted to God. We weren't perfect in every way, but in our home, God was a big deal. And we talked about God. In this church, it is my hope that we will discipline our minds as well. J.P. Moreland says, we have confused the need for a childlike faith that is an attitude of profound trust in God and faithful love for Him with childish thinking. We've confused childlike faith with childish thinking. He goes on, what we have everywhere in Scripture is profoundly or are, are profoundly intelligent teachings poured out from minds that are also inspired and centered in the love of God. Let me tell you something really cool about your Bible. Do you know that most of the men who wrote it couldn't even read and write? They had someone write it for them, what they spoke. Because they desired God, He was on their minds. And they could talk big about Him. They weren't, intelli- they weren't intellectuals. The Bible tells us that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So he goes out and God's going to, Jesus is sitting there. He said, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to start my church and I got to get the best thinkers. Okay, so if I'm going to get the best thinkers, let me go over here to the fishermen. The fishermen. I like being down on the floor, by the way. I like the room. I'm a charismatic in another life. Maybe in this life. He goes to the seaport. Are you kidding me? You ever heard the phrase, he cussed like a... Yeah. And they were all out there smoking, drinking, and cussing too. Maybe not this. Maybe this. Maybe this. I don't know. Maybe both. Catch any fish? No, this is terrible. 
Jesus comes out and says, hey, throw your net on the other side. And they say, look, we've been fishing all night. Leave us alone, man. Throw your net on the other side. All right, teacher, because you said so. We know you're important. Throw your net on the other side. And they begin to pull it up. And what is the response of this man? The response that every one of us should have when we begin our Christian lives. Get away from me. I am unclean. I'm not worthy for this task, which you called me to. I'm so filthy. I can't do it, God. I can't. Moses in a burning bush. No, I don't. I'm not the guy. Remember, I'm a murderer. Remember, I, st- 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 I stammer. I can't even speak right. I don't have all of the glories that you've given to the men in the palaces of Egypt. I can't speak like that. And God says, come with me. I've given you your mouth. I'll make you fishers of men. Not many of you are college professors. Don't you see that the harvest is ripe for God to do a work in this community? With the basic, sinful human being who begins his life and walk with the Lord that says, get away from me, I'm unclean, I need your salvation, I need your grace above all else. God can use that heart. So we have to use our minds, though. So he can use that mind. And this is who he wrote the most beautiful book ever written. Through those minds of fishermen. So how do we do this? We have to create a culture of intellectualism. Being intellectual is not the same as being intelligent. They're not the same. Intellectualism is a world of life view that seeks to engage the world in cognitive reflection and evaluation. Intellectualism does not have to divorce itself from the emotions, but it is a friend of the emotions living in harmony with the emotions. That means that the emotions are never to be divorced from the intellect, and that the intellect is never to be divorced from the human emotion. But we can create a culture of intellectualism when we know God's word and reflect on his word for our lives. My mother didn't have a college degree. And do you know that in those times in my life when I was at my lowest point, she would always just bring to me the word of God? She brought to me a word. She engaged my mind. And she would just say a little word. Just a little word. That's not about intelligence. It's about being intellectual. It's about saying that this man needs to hear something. And what he needs to hear is God speak right now. Second, we must stop musing or amusing ourselves and start musing. We amuse ourselves too much. We sit down, we turn on the Netflix, bink, and we go. And we binge watch for hours and hours And we just take that crap in and we fill our minds with it. And then we read on the internet all of these blogs and we think that they're the gospel truth because it was on the Huffington Post. And we just eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it all up. And then we go out and then that's how we live our life. That's called amuse. Amuse. It's a Greek word meaning to not think. Amuse was a thinker. Thinkers were the muses. To amuse, you put the A before the word in Greek, it negates it. To amuse yourself is to not think. We're too busy arguing in in the past about whether or not Christians should go to R-rated movies or not. You know what? I'm worried a lot of times about some of the G-rated movies our kids are watching because they're sitting there amusing themselves. And I know I'm guilty of it too. But we amuse. We just we don't think about it. We're not going to engage with it. We treat college as a means to an end. So we amuse ourselves with what the professors say. It never occurs to us that we should engage them in discourse and dialogue. We take every word from every article in the internet as infallible and never stop to scrutinize whether or not what is this saying is true. You go onto the news on the internet and you will see every single story give you a distorted view of life that all life is death, destruction, and mayhem. They don't tell you that Miss Mabel got her cat out of the tree anymore. Four gunned down. 
and they give you their own perspective. And we think, they're not biased. Love God with your mind so you encounter that worldview and you take every thought captive. Listen to what the Bible says about loving God with our mind. The Bible teaches us to be on the offensive with our minds, that we are to demolish arguments and every pretension. The word pretense means a thought about something that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We're to demolish them. How often do you read that article and say, that's not what the Word of God says? Look, here's where it's flawed. And that, of course, requires that we know what the Word of God says so that we can demolish every argument. We cannot even recognize the arguments and the pretensions that set themselves up against God's Word without first knowing what it says. One cannot spot the fake without first knowing intimately the characteristics and qualities of the real thing. But we are to muse and engage our culture with thought. Finally, we must align our thought life with God's will. The overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount was that true holiness is a matter of the heart and mind. So you haven't committed murder, Jesus said. Do you hate your brother? Oh, so you haven't committed adultery. Do you lust? The Bible Belt in America. Do you know that it is the largest consumer of pornography in the world? Oh, they made it to the altar and they can wear their white dress. But they've been addicted to pornography. But loving God with our mind brings every thought, every thought in alignment with God's will. So that when no one's around, when no one's there to see what you're thinking about, the believer remembers that God looks on the inside and he's not impressed with the whitewashed outside of the tomb of your body. He knows whether or not on the inside are dead men's bones. We must take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought, loving God with all our minds means not only increasing in our knowledge of Him, it means purging our thoughts of the wickedness of hate and racism and lust and greed and sexism and covetousness and evil desires and every form of selfishness. That's what it means to love God with our mind. Jesus taught that the foundation of Christian behavior is loving God with every fiber of our being and loving our neighbors as ourselves. At our church, it is our mission to develop and disciple the whole person to love God with all of their heart, all of their soul, and all of their mind. The end to which we are moving is God alone and nothing and no one else. It is my prayer that you will desire God above all else. That you will devote your life to God alone. And that you will discipline your mind towards loving and thinking about God. May it never be the case that God stands at the door of our church knocking and waiting to be let in. May this church be God's church. And may our desire and delight be in the Lord God alone. Let's pray. God, you are holy. You are most radiant, and we pray that your radiance would be seen in our lives so that when men and women see our good deeds, what will they do? They will glorify you. Let us glorify you this week so that other men and women might glorify you let us align ourselves with you so that other men and women would align themselves with you, Lord God. For the truth is, those who don't glorify you, your word tells us, are dead. And there is a hell waiting for those who don't glorify you. Oh God, we don't talk about hell. But Lord, the most loving thing to do is to know that there is a real judgment for those who seek to glorify the created thing rather than the Creator. 
let us love you this week by glorifying in our lives and reflecting your glory in everything we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.